I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Brian Farney, an M&A partner at Sidley and co-head of the firm's global M&A and PE practice. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here with you, David. Thank you. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First, a little bit about your background, how you came to the law and have the practice that you do. Then we're going to discuss lateral hiring, the challenges and opportunities there for law firms, the need to build teams in M&A and how to do that in a setting where a lot of folks aren't in the office five days a week what you're seeing in your own practice and the greater challenges that increased regulatory activity poses. So with that, tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to the law and have the practice that you do. Sure. So I did not come from a long line of lawyers. My father was in the service and went to night school to get his college degree. So I was kind of virtually first-gen college and didn't know any lawyers. So it really wasn't something that was on my radar when I was young and coming up. And when I was in college, I went to the University of Wisconsin. When I was in college, I'd spent a large chunk of my time. I was an accounting major working at an audit firm, a local audit firm in Madison, and probably spent 30, 35 hours a week there. It was almost like a full-time job and really got to see a lot of lawyers in action sort of tangentially to the audits that we were doing. And I thought, you know, boy, that looks a lot more interesting than what I'm doing. And I started exploring it a little bit and concluded that that was something that I wanted to pursue and applied to law school and went down to Northwestern. And that's how I got into it. And talk about having a a job during college. Did that help you then when you joined Sidley balance the demands of the job and the rest of your life better than just being a college student and without a job might have? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I learned how to juggle things a little earlier maybe than others, but obviously in our profession, you got to learn how to juggle things somewhere along the way. And yeah, I probably learned it earlier rather than later and trying to balance that job and and all the studies and other things that I had going on back then. So it was a busy time, but it was interesting. And then talk about your early career, how you found your way into M&A practice. So I came out of school in the early 90s. There was uh, It was actually a very poor M&A market back then, and there were a lot of interesting bankruptcy cases. And Sidley was had a pretty active bankruptcy practice. And so I started in bankruptcy and spent two years doing that. I thought it would be fun to take companies apart and put them back together. And it turned out that I didn't enjoy it that much. I mean, a lot of esoteric creditors' rights issues as you fight over a pile of diminishing assets, a lot of time in court. And I just concluded it wasn't for me and picked up the phone and called Tom Cole, who was the head of the M&A practice at Sidley back then. And Tom was kind enough to let me join the group and worked out pretty well. Talk about your relationship with him and some of your other mentors at Sidley. Sure. You know, there were plenty. I was fortunate to have a lot of good mentors and role models. You know, Tom was a person that you looked up to. He's a great practitioner. He's a great leader. 
And he really was a role model for a lot of us young folks coming up in the practice. But I had others, you know. Newt Minow was an elder statesman of our firm and a, a leading light in the bar, former FCC commissioner and Supreme Court clerk and all the rest, and just a really great all-round guy. So I was blessed to know Newt. He passed away recently. And then I had some great mentors, including Larry Barden, who's the former chair of our firm and was in the, the M&A practice for many years. Larry was just a great guy and, and still is a mentor to me. And he retired last year. Miss him a lot. So how do you progress from the period of your career when you're leaning a lot on your mentors to help you develop your expertise in the practice and understand how to interact with the opposing side, how to manage a team? How do you move from that to having your own practice and being a partner who's responsible for managing the entire team, responsible for generating business? Yeah, it's a progression. And one of the things about M&A is you have to get thrown in the pool at some point. And when I look back on my career at some of the defining deals when I was young, you know, third, fourth, fifth year associate, I was reflecting on this last night. We represented AT Kearney, which was a management consulting firm in their sale to EDS, big tech company. This was back in the 90s. And EDS was famously run by Ross Perot. By Ross Perot. You are correct, David. It was a big deal back then. And it was a really, really complicated deal. And, you know, I was a fourth year associate and there were a couple of other fourth year associates in our group and we were all friends and we kind of ran that deal. We had a partner supervisor, of course, but that was my getting thrown in the pool moment. And there were just so many different facets of that deal. We were on the front lines negotiating with a team from I think it was Baker Botts, if I recall. And that was where I learned a lot about how to put together a deal, keep driving it forward, deal with all the complexities that come up. It was very international, a lot of cross-border aspects to it. And that was a great learning experience for me. But in M&A, you have to keep progressing. That was one where I was one of the team at a more junior level. The deal that I remember most where I was leading the deal team, where there were just so many different things that came up and you were constantly reacting to them and trying to deal with them and and also learning a lot, but in a different way, was representing GE when it sold its appliances business. And this was probably 10 or 12 years ago. And just about everything you could imagine happening in a deal happened on that deal. And it's hard and you have some sleepless nights. But that's really where you stretch and learn a lot as an M&A lawyer. I mean, just to give you some examples, we sold the business to Electrolux. It ultimately ran into antitrust difficulties. It was litigated and then terminated. And we re-signed, and this was all as part of an auction on the second go-round, re-signed with High Air and had antitrust issues Cifius issues. We literally had the exploding plant MAE analysis that people talk about exploding plants and in the context of negotiating MAEs and everyone chuckles and moves on. We actually had it and had to do an analysis about whether an MAE had occurred. So it was just, you know, everything under the sun. But again, that's where you learn. That's where you really stretch and grow as an M&A lawyer. 
That deal that GE sale you referred to had significant antitrust and competition issues because the buyers, I remember, was Chinese. How might that deal have played out differently in today's regulatory and antitrust environment? And what challenges are you seeing in that regard as you consider deals now? Well, initially, the buyer in that deal was Electrolux, who was a Swedish company. And then later, when that part of the deal cratered and we had to find another buyer, we went to Hyair, it's a Chinese company. I would say in today's environment, it would be clearly would have been very difficult to get a deal done with Hyair in light of the CFIUS regime and enforcement and current environment. So, yeah, there a lot has changed on a lot of fronts regulatory wise in terms of getting deals done and planning for deals. The proliferation of investment laws, which I'm sure you have written about and others have written about quite a bit, has really been something in the very recent past under the Trump administration and thereafter, you're just seeing much more adoption of investment laws by countries and greater enforcement and the expansion in the US of CFIUS, of course, and its enforcement. So the environment has changed a lot for the worse. And you just need to work your way through those rules and be very vigilant, particularly when you're at a deal where the target company is operating in a bunch of different countries. You got to make sure you've done that analysis and your homework on the front end so you don't have a closing issue on the back end. You, of course, spent most of your career going into the office every day in a culture where people went into the office because that's what people did. That's obviously changed significantly as a result of COVID. What challenges has that created for building M&A teams and building a culture within the group? Well, it's many faceted, David. Not being in the office regularly hurts on a number of fronts. You know, I had talked about mentors and role models earlier. It's harder, it's not impossible, but it's harder to mentor someone when you're not present together. It is harder to project as a role model when you're not present and together. And so I think folks who aren't in the office, particularly young people who are not in the office, are missing opportunities for mentoring, missing opportunities to watch more senior lawyers who could be role models for them, who could help them learn their craft and their trade. They're missing that by not being in the office. And it's unfortunate. And as far as team building goes, I mean, as you know, because you cover this area, M&A teams, the team aspect of working on M&A transactions is critically important. Everybody needs to be working together and communicating to deliver the best possible service. And that is better done when you're more present and in constant communication. And it's more fun. I mean, there's an element of M&A that's fun. I mean, that's why we keep doing it. It's hard work, but we keep doing it year after year because we enjoy it. And you enjoy it more, again, when people are present. So it's unfortunate. I mean, it's obviously started with COVID and it's continuing and we're trying to get people back to the office. And I think it's gradually coming back, but hopefully it comes back more. And I think particularly for our practice, it's very valuable. I mean, the emotional component of what you're talking about is is something I've thought a fair amount about and talked a lot about with people. A lot of the satisfaction that many people derive from the job 
It seems to be in their interactions with their colleagues and even their counterparties. And that is greatly diminished when everybody's working remotely. So then you ask what people enjoy about the job that keeps them doing it deal after deal and year after year. It's interesting. It's a really hard job and it it imposes a lot of demands on people and infringes on their personal lives. And and that's sort of the negative, but the positives are so positive. There's a camaraderie associated with working on deals and being in the trenches together. People always use that metaphor, you know, being in the trenches together. But there's a little bit of that, you know, when you pull all-nighters with a group of people that you like and you're working towards a common goal, then you achieve that goal successfully for your clients. That's pretty cool. That's, that's what keeps people coming back. And the work, of course, is interesting and, and challenging. And the, the clients you work with are often interesting folks and fun to work with themselves. So those are all the good things, but you lose a little bit of the good when you're not physically present working together. In your role in firm management, you're very involved in lateral hiring. Talk about that. Talk about what you look for in lateral hires maybe signs that the lateral might not be a great fit for your firm? Yeah, I do a lot of that. I do a lot of lateral partner hiring and other hiring in our practice, but even beyond just our practice. And we look for several characteristics. One is we look for people that are builders, that have built practices, that have built client followings, that have even helped build practice groups at their firms or help build their firm. That's very important to us because that's what we're trying to do. And we enjoy having people join us in that endeavor. We look for people who we're confident will be good cultural fits. And you never know that upfront, but you can get a sense when you get to know somebody over the course of several dinners and meetings. We also want buy-in from our existing partners. So we have a pretty rigorous interview process more rigorous, I think, than most firms where our entire 40-person executive committee has the ability to interview each person, people in the practice group that they'll be practicing with, particularly in their office, will have an opportunity to interview them. So it's a more robust interview process, but it's important to us to get buy-in from all of the constituencies in our firm that the person would be a good addition. So that's our process and what we try to do. Are there mistakes you've made in lateral hiring and what have you learned from them? Or do you think that if you, like many firms, are hiring a fair number of people, not all of those people are going to work out, even though both, you know, they may be good people and the firm may want to bring them on? Yeah, I think there's a few things. If you hire folks and bring them in, you're eventually going to make a mistake. And we've made some. There's probably three things you need to do. One is learn what went wrong and is there anything we can do on the intake side that could have ameliorated the problem. Secondly is just recognize if you have made a mistake, of course, try to help the partner overcome whatever may need to be overcome. But if you've made a mistake, just acknowledge it and move on. I think the third is the most important, which is you can't let a mistake in a lateral hire inhibit you from continuing with your plan. You have to know you're going to occasionally make a mistake in a lateral hire, 
and recognize that and not let it inhibit you from continuing on. Talk a little bit about how your process of onboarding new partners has changed. I mean, even the term itself is relatively new. Well, as you know, 15, 20 years ago, lateral partners were a rarity. It just didn't happen all that much, but it's become part of the business, part of the profession, and you see it much more. And I think that firms who do it well, both in identifying talent to bring aboard, and then, as you say, the onboarding process itself, you know, firms that do that well have a competitive advantage. And we think we have a competitive advantage. We think we're pretty good at identifying folks who will fit in our culture and thrive at our firm. We also think we're pretty good at bringing them on board and integrating them. And most importantly, supporting their clients as they go through the transition. You have to support their clients. You have to hit it out of the park right away so that their clients feel good about the change that their lawyer has made. And we've worked a lot on that. I personally spend a lot of time on it. Dan Klibner, who runs the group with me, spends a lot of time on it. And our whole team does. It's important. And it can be the difference between somebody succeeding or or not succeeding. So you feel that first three to six months, maybe the year is, is just absolutely critical because you never get that time back in terms of transitioning the lawyer and the lawyer's clients onto your platform. Yeah, for sure. Because the clients are trusting their lawyer to go to a place that's going to take care of them. And they want to see that they're being taken care of. And they're looking carefully at, you know, in the case of deal lawyers, at those first few deals after their lawyer transfers to a new firm, they want to make sure it's it's working well. And, and obviously, the partner has a very invested interest in making sure it works well, as do we. So it's imperative that the first three months, six months go smoothly. And then what other the challenges are you thinking about as a member of your firm's management committee or what issues are occupying a lot of your time as a group in thinking about firm management now? We're thinking about a lot of the same things that other firms are thinking about. It's a slowing environment macroeconomically. Our M&A practice is slower than it certainly was a couple of years ago. Capital markets are slower than it was a couple of years ago. We're managing through a slower growth period, and there's lots of geopolitical issues to think about. So it's really a lot of the same things that other firms are having to contend with. And then finally, talk a little bit about how you decompress from the job. Well, I have three kids. They're college age or thereabouts. We try to spend as much time as we can with them. A silver lining of COVID, as difficult as it was for us and for everybody, was that all our kids were home from school and I got to spend a lot of time with them. I missed a lot of dinners along the way when they were younger. And it was really nice to have them all in the house. We were fortunate to have that and we got to spend a lot of quality time with them. And I had a lot of at home dinners with them and, and that was very nice. One of the more interesting things I guess I did to decompress was I spent about 10 years on an adult men's hockey team. A group of us, our kids were playing hockey, and a group of the dads decided, you know, these guys look like they're having a lot of fun. Let's start our own adult hockey team. And none of us had ever played hockey. (laughs) And so it was kind of a spectacle watching all of us 
flop around on the ice in full hockey gear for a while. But, you know, we stayed with it. I played for eight or nine years and the core group eventually got to be where we were at least okay as hockey players. And we would play other old guys at night. And it was kind of fun. That was probably the most decompressed. I think, uh, you know, you're just your mind is totally away from the work when you're out on the ice skating around chasing a puck. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking with you as always, David. Thank you. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.